Good morning. Uh, if you got your Bibles, please turn with me to, with me to Matthew 1, verse 28. We're looking at Matthew 1, verse 28. For those that don't know me, uh, my name is Jimmy Fowler. I'm the executive pastor here at Redeemer Fellowship. I have the joy in honor of bringing God's word and looking at God's word with you this morning. Uh, I also have the honor of uh, helping out in the youth ministry for Sojourn. So we have that Christmas party. We got youth group tonight, but sign up for that Christmas party. It's going to be fun. Games, food. I mean, that's all you really need. It's youth ministry. Matthew 1, verse 21. Now, I believe now most of us have been involved in some form of conflict. I mean, everyone here has been in some form of conflict, right? Like if you've got siblings, you've got a brother or sister, you're in conflict, right? Whether you're annoyed at them, whether you are mad that they took your toy, maybe you stole their toy, maybe you slapped them, ran off, mom came and asked you what happened, you lied, and then, you know, you know you did it though, right? But you're in conflict. Sometimes siblings annoy each other. Or if you just had friends, I love my friends, but sometimes I don't really love my friends. I don't love kind of what they do or say or how they act. Or sometimes they'll wear like a, a weird shoe, and I go, why are you wearing that shoe? That's just a weird shoe. Mrs. Beck understands what I mean. Sure would. See? <laughs> ah, you got to say it, though, right? But sometimes you're in conflict, or if you're in middle school or in high school or elementary, sometimes you have conflicts on the playground, sometimes you get into fights, sometimes you have arguments, people, people push each other. Or if you've been married for two minutes, you understand conflict pretty darn well, right? Now, I see some guys like, nah, this marriage is conflict-free. Mm, I'm looking at your wife. It's not. You just don't realize that you're in conflict. But most of us, all of us, have been in some sort of conflict, and how we deal with it is... Sometimes it happens in one of two ways. There are some people, when they're in conflict, and especially when there's this tension of being in the wrong, like when you know there's something in between you, when you know that there's some sort of grievance or some sort of like something that you need to move past. Now, some people look at that and they just want to see the world burn. They don't care. They just don't care. They don't want to reconcile. They don't want to figure it out. They don't want to confess. They don't want to try to figure out like how do we move past this tension between us. There are some people like that. But then there are others. There are others that, that have anxiety about it. They don't like it. They, they want to try to figure out how do we move past this? How do we reconcile between us? How do we take this conflict and just get beyond it? Right? They want to make things right. You see, as we look at our passage, and as we just kind of look at, as, at the passage as a whole, but then even in Scripture in general, we see that there is this tension that the world lives in, that humanity lives in, needing to be made right with God. That we are justly deserving of God's wrath and condemnation. And that there is no way in and of ourselves that we can rectify that situation, but we need to be made right with God to be forgiven, to receive his mercy and his grace, to confess our sins. And they're right there. Confess our sins. Sin is what we'll be looking at this morning in our text. Turn with me now, Matthew 1, 
Verse 21 says this. The angel is talking here. She, Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. There's a lot to unpack in this passage, especially as we're talking about sin. And what I want us to see this morning is this, that Jesus saves us from the penalty, power, and presence of sin. That Jesus and Jesus alone is the only one that can save us from the penalty, power, and the presence of sin. Now we're going to look at this in three sections. I'm going to give you a guess as to what those three sections are. First, we're going to be looking at how Jesus saves us from the penalty of sin. Good. Secondly, we're going to be looking at how Jesus saves us from the power of sin. And third, we'll be looking at how Jesus saves us from the presence of sin. But before we dive in, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I, I praise you for the opportunity to look at your word. Father, your, your word is beautiful. Lord, I, I, it's convicting and yet compelling. It's, it's, it's assuring. And Lord, as we look at your word, we see what, what you have done for your people, that you will be, save us from our sin that you will save your people, your possession from their sin. Lord, I pray that, that you'd be opening up, that you're the, by your spirit, Lord, that you will be speaking to us, that, Lord, what is of you will, will remain, Father, that we, as we look at your word, you would convict us of those areas in our lives that, that need attention, that you would highlight maybe some other areas of our lives that that we really need to, to tweak and to work on. But ultimately, Father, I pray that as we go through this, that we would come away rejoicing and glorifying you. We pray this in your name. Amen. So Jesus saves us from the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin. So we have this promise here in Matthew 1. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. But this is not just the only place we see this promise. Throughout the Old Testament, we have this promise of who Jesus is and what he will do, kind of laid out in Scripture. And I know Pastor Joe has talked about some of it. I'm going to give a few uh, points here for us this morning. I know he touched on in the garden, right there at the fall, right there at the moment of this of, of sin entering the world, God declares this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There we have this first proclamation of the gospel spoken. As the apple hits the ground, the Lord God himself declares, there will be a way. There will be a way. This will be rectified. My people will be with me. I will save my people. You might think that you won, but he is going to crush you. He will crush you and overtake you. Right there in the garden, we see it. But we don't just see it in the garden. We also see it even in something as simple, quote unquote, simple as Noah's Ark. Here we see this world that deserves God's wrath. 
this type, there's this, ty- this typology, this thing that's pointing towards who Jesus is and what he would do. And here we have this ark and this world that deserves God's wrath. They deserve it. And God, God though, in his mercy, preserves a people for himself. He sets them aside to save them. As they enter into the ark, they are saved from this flood, from this condemnation, from this damnation that will overtake the rest. And here, though, we see that all in Christ are saved. For those of us who are in Jesus, as we enter into his presence, as we embrace our relationship with him, we are spared from this floodwaters of God's wrath. We are buoyed by Christ himself, by what he has done on the cross. Here we see this picture of this promise of forgiveness, this picture of this promise of salvation, of redemption. All in Christ are saved. I know Pastor Joe touched on last week about Moses and Moses being this mediator between God and man. And we see this in Jesus as well, that he is our mediator. That he speaks to us. He talks to us, that he represents us. And we see even in these uh, festivals and in the rituals in the Old Testament, you know, this day of jubilee where, where everything would be forgiven, all debts wiped. You didn't deserve it, but it happened. Or even at the Passover, at the Passover as they're reminded about what God had done in Egypt, that he had spared God's people, that he had spared their children as he, as he went through And even the sacrificial system that we read in the Old Testament is, yet it's a precursor, it's a sign of the forgiveness that we will find in Christ. You know, for for God's people there, they had to keep going back. They had to keep going back because they kept sinning daily and daily. And because that sacrifice was not sufficient, that dove was not sufficient, that lamb was not sufficient, that fruit was not sufficient, but the only sufficient sacrifice could be by the blood of Christ. This sacrificial system pointed to the salvation that we would have in Jesus, that he would give of himself, that his blood would be spilled on our behalf for the penalty of our sins. And then we have the prophets. I know Pastor Joe touched on that there too. These prophets that, that proclaimed that there would be this forgiveness, that he would forgive our iniquities, that he would save his people, that he would redeem them. And now we have this promised child right here. We've got Jesus, which means Yeshua, which is Yahweh is salvation. And between, between this period and the Old Testament, it's called the intertestamental period. It's roughly 400 years. And in this 400 years, it's like this 400 years of silence for God's people, right? 400 years of silence where, uh, I believe with Malachi, from Malachi until uh, what we read in the New Testament, there's, there's not, no prophets really going around prophesying. It's almost like God is silent. And God's people are starting to kind of worry a little bit. And they start thinking to themselves, okay, how do we, how do we regain back? We're, we're being occupied. We've got another group of people that are ordering us around. We're not able to worship freely. God is silent. The, where are the prophets? Where is this Messiah? But we have this promise that, that we would be redeemed, that we would be saved. 
Because they're looking back to the Old Testament. They're looking back to what God had done for them. That as they were cast out, as they were being occupied, as they were under suffering, what they began to do was they would see, especially if you read Nehemiah chapter 9, there's this continual cycle that you read there. And this cycle is not just the cycle of God's people, but I would actually... Uh, uh, suggest it's, it's really a, a cycle of all of us. A cycle of all of us in Nehemiah chapter 9 where, where God's people are rejoicing in God's presence. God is with them. They're receiving the benefits of them. But then they go wayward. But then they go wayward. Then they decide to not follow God's ways. They don't seek after him. They seek after idols and whatever the other nations are doing, whatever the world and the culture is doing. And so then God casts them out. God casts them out. He punishes them. He casts them out of their land. He oppresses them. He sends a, a, a community to come and oppress them so that they would see of their need of their Savior, so they would see of their need of their Redeemer, so they would see of their need of their God. And so they would cry out to God. They would cry out to God, please, Lord, forgive us. Forgive us. We will follow your ways. We will seek after you. We will be your people. You will be our God. And so then God would intervene. He would intervene and save them, restore them, and then they'd start the cycle again because they'd forget all about that. And here, 400 years of silence. Occupied Israel was looking to be restored. But what does the angel say? Save his people from their sins. It's not, I will save his people from their occupation, from the occupating, from those that are, that are oppressing them. It doesn't say, it says, save his people from their sins. And the language here is emphatic, right? It goes, she will bear a son. You shall call his name. He will save. Another way of translating that, that he will save, is he and no other will save his people from their sins. That Jesus, and Jesus alone, because Yahweh is salvation, will save his people from their sins. Nothing else, no one else. They can't trust in anything else. And so then, he will save them from their sin. First, from the penalty of sin. So what is sin? You know, often people talk about that word uh, hamartia and how it's this picture of missing the mark. Think of like archery. You got a bullseye, you're loading it up, you're sending it out, and you miss the mark. You don't hit that bullseye, right? It's this notion of, of not hitting it exactly where it's meant to be and where it should be. But when we're talking about missing the mark and we're talking about sin, we're not just talking about, oh, I just glanced by it. We're talking about we have missed the mark of God's standards, that we have missed the mark of what God has called us to be and how to live. I mean, you look at the Ten Commandments. There it talks about, there God lays out some standards of what one should and shouldn't do. And then you may say to yourself, well, hold on, I've not killed, I've not stolen, I've not done some of these things. And yet Jesus goes further and says, hold on, it's not just about physically doing these things, it's about your heart. It's about the hatred you might have in your heart, the lust that you have in your heart, the covetousness that you have in one's own heart. It's not just about the physical aspect of doing it, but it's that desire to do it. And we all know based off that desire to do it that we all fail. We miss the mark. Or what's commonly called uh, the, the, the Shema, right? The love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Right? You shall love the Lord your God with all your affection. 
Can, you, can we honestly look and say that we have loved God, that you have loved God with all your heart, your affection, with all your mind, with all your strength? Or how about loving your neighbors? Listen, some of us have annoying neighbors. They're hard to love. But we're called to still love our neighbors and to seek after their flourishing and to seek after their good. So what is the result then of missing this mark? Romans 3.23 says it. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have fallen short of the glory of God. We are all in this same boat. We are all in this same position. We are all under the same just condemnation of our God. But then what is that penalty of the sin, of our sin? Well, we see a picture of it in the garden at the fall, right? Where God says, eat and you shall surely die. So there we see this physical death. We see this physical death, but then it doesn't just stop there because God being a holy and just God, he then casts them out of the garden. He casts them out. There's this, this spiritual separation. We see that even in Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. All of us deserve this death. All of us deserve this, uh, this separation. And one might think, well, hold on. Isn't God a loving God? How could he do that to people? Ephesians 5, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. God's wrath is just. And all those that are in disobedience will justly receive that punishment. But God doesn't just leave us there. He doesn't leave you there. He doesn't leave me there. God made payment for our sins. You know, during this holiday time, there's this really, really annoying trend that pops up. And I, I can't stand it. I'm a Dunkin' Donuts guy. I like to go through in the morning. And I go in, and they're like, hey, everyone's paying for the car behind them. You want in? And then the person's always really cheery about it. Like, man, 21 people have already done it. You're next. I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm not next. I don't know if they bought one or 10. I don't know. My card, there's only so much money on it. I don't know if I could just go ahead and pay for everybody's, right? So I'm like, no, we're going to stop it here. I'll buy my one. <laughs> and as cheesy as it sounds, Jesus don't let that pass. He pays. And he paid the price for each and every single one of us. Exodus 34, 6 to 7 says this. The Lord passed away, or sorry, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So you see this, look at how loving the Lord is, abounding, abounding in steadfast love. He is slow to anger. He is gracious. He is merciful. But, who will by no means clear the guilty. You know, our God is a holy God, a just judge, and a just judge cannot just let this treachery go by. There has to be payment for it. And God himself took that punishment, just like as we talked about these, these old rituals and sacrifices in the Old Testament, where you'd have this, this lamb, where the, this goat where they would sit there, the, uh, the high priest, and all the community would be there, and the high priest would lay their hands upon him. And signify, like, I'm, we're putting all our transgressions upon this animal. And then they're sending out the goat, this scapegoat, out into the wilderness to die. Thereby signifying, look, our sins are leaving our community. 
It is leaving our presence. We are now cleansed from this sin. We see that Jesus is our lamb. 1 Peter 2, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. When we look at Christmas, when we look at Advent, we see that he would forgive us He would save us from our sins. He is saving us from the penalty of our sin by receiving the penalty upon himself. Thereby, we can then sing with the hymnist, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Or as William Henderson, he says this, he sums it up very well. I would like to read his words. It is ever God, God alone, who in and through his son saves his people. While some trust in chariots and some in horses, in physical strength, knowledge, reputation, prestige, position, magnificent and impressive machinery, influential friends, and intrepid generals, none of these, whether operating singly or in conjunction with all the others, is able to deliver man from his chief enemy, the foe that is little by little destroying his very heart, namely sin, or, as we see here, sins. Those of thought, word, and deed. Sins of omission, commission, and inner disposition. All those various ways in which man misses the mark. God's glory. It takes no less than the atoning death of Jesus and the sanctifying power of his spirit to cleanse hearts and lives. Jesus himself. As we look at this passage, we see that the promise of today's passage is we will be saved from the penalty of sin. But it doesn't stop there. Jesus has saved us from the penalty of sin. He has saved us from the guilt of our sin. But there is still the ongoing work of dealing with our sin daily. Unfortunately, it's not one and done for us, is it? That's not been my experience. It is a continual. Sin continually comes at me and I continually gravitate towards it. You see, we have this holiness through the the sacrifice of Jesus, Hebrews 10.10. And by that, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So there we see, listen, we are sanctified. We have been forgiven. We are his own possession. We have this hope that we can embrace. We have this hope that we can believe in and trust. We have this hope that our sister right now is rejoicing in. And yet, though, we that are still here still deal daily with the power of sin in in us and through around us. And so we, but God does not leave us alone. He does not just forgive and walk away, but he has sent his spirit. And we, we read, 2 Thessalonians says this, but we ought always give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as a first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in truth, we have this great helper, this helper that convicts us, that convicts us of our sins, that when we do go wayward, when we are missing the mark, when we are out of bounds, then we have this helper that is convicting us, leading us, teaching us, reminding us that this is not God's way. Now, when we stop sensing that, when we stop sensing it, that's when we should be concerned. I hear from other brothers and sisters, I feel, so, I feel so down about my sin. 
I'm so convicted by it. The Holy Spirit keep, keeps pointing it out. Now, some of, us, some of us are just, we condemn ourselves too much. We don't, we don't give ourselves a bit of a break. There are some people that are like that, that are just constantly, for whatever reason in their past. But there are some of us that have been, that have enjoyed our sin so much that we're numb to it. We're numb to our sin. I, I can think of a number of items in my life that I've had to wrestle with this week as I was thinking through what are those items that I'm numb to in my life. And I need, and we need the Holy Spirit to be pointing those things out. See, our response in this sanctification, as, as, as the word says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We are called to work this out. Now, some of us, some people trust too much in their works. You know, as one that grew up as a, as a nominal Catholic, it was very much this, this teaching of it's not just Jesus and what he's done, but my works are in there too. That saves me, right? But that's not true. And, and for some of us, though, we still, we, we look at our works, we say, hold on, well, I've, I've, I've grown up in the church. I'm saved. I go every Sunday. I'm good to go. I serve. I give. I'm part of the leadership. I attend meetings. I'm part of Bible study. I'm part of discipleship group. Some of us look at the works and we give, that, we give ourselves a pass on our sin. And instead of doing the real hard heart work of looking inside us and dealing with what is it that is going on in my heart right now? What is this sin that I'm gravitating towards? Why am I so affectionately wanting this? Why am I so drawn to this? We look to our works as an excuse but there's another danger. There's another danger. Some neglect their calling to good works. Some just say, no, no, no. Any, any good work is just, that's, don't do it. I don't need to do anything because otherwise I, I can't earn my salvation. And if I do that, I'm going to be in danger of thinking I can earn my salvation. No, that's just a cop out to not, to not do anything. That's just you giving yourself a pass to avoid engaging in the life of the church. Or just in discipleship as a believer. Martin Luther says it this way. Works indeed are good and God strictly requires them of us, but they do not make us holy. It does not sanctify us. It does not set us apart. I, I love that. Works indeed are good and God strictly requires them of us, but they do not make us holy. Another way of, of looking at it is we don't do good works for our salvation. We do good works because of our salvation. It is, it is in response to the salvation that we have received in Christ. It is an overflow of gratitude in what he has done for us. You know, the proper response for all of us that as, as we have these, as, uh, when we're talking about working out uh, our salvation, our sanctification is we should be constantly repenting because of this power of sin in our lives. Right? We confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When's the last time you've confessed your sins? I mean, when's the last time other than the Lord's Supper, what we just partook in, when we confessed our sins? For some people, it's once a week. For some people, it's as they gather together at the Lord's table where they actually sit down and take stock, take inventory of their heart, of their words, of their actions. And listen, I, 
I'm not just pointing at you. I'm speaking to me right now. I'm preaching to, to me where I often neglect to take stock, where I often neglect to kind of think through, hold on, well, that was weird. Why did I do that? Why did I say that? That was bad. I get numb to it. Like I told you, I've been reflecting a lot. What are those things I'm numb to? This is the heart work that, that God's calling me to. But we are all called to repentance. We're all called to faith, Galatians 5.5. 5, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. E- even though we are dealing with our sin now, we still have the hope that we have been forgiven. We don't have to live in despair. We don't have to sit there and live, oh man, I messed up again. I'm outside of God's grace. No. No. We still have faith that we are forgiven, that we have been justified, and that we have union with Christ. But we are called to obedience, 1 Peter 1, 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Obedience to the truth. We look to God's word and what God says. You know, the world around us tries to tell us how we are, how we are to think and how we are to act and how we are to live, and yet we need to be looking to Scripture, to what God's ways are, that his... his His word is like a lamp unto our feet. It guides our path and how we live and how we think. The means of grace that we have as we pray, as we gather together on on, on the Lord's Day in fellowship, as we gather midweek for mutual edification in community groups and in discipleship groups, as we serve one another. John Owen famously said, Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. How true is that, that work, that word? If we're not vigilant, it's easy for us to become numb and overcome by our sin. Be killing sin. Be about that work, or it be killing you. See, the promise of today's passage is we will be saved from the power of sin in our lives. Ultimately, we will be saved from the presence of sin. You know, we will always struggle with sin. 1 John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. You know, sometimes we, we deceive others. We tell others we're doing good, we're doing fine, we're doing upright, godly things. I'm in my word, yeah. I'm, you know, I'm studying, yeah. I'm serving, yeah. But deep down, but that problem is sometimes the worst part is when we're lying to ourselves, when we sit there and believe our own lies that we're doing just fine, that we're walking completely upright, holy, just. It's not, to meant, not meant to be that we should be walking around in despair, but we should be walking around in transparency and honesty and accountability with ourselves and with others, with those that we, we know and we trust and we, we engage in, in Lack of, I hate this thing, doing life together. I hate that thing. I hate when they say that. But it's true. That's the thing. Because when you're actually engaging with one another, with other brothers and sisters, you are then showing who you really are. And you can't hide it. It becomes uncomfortable. It becomes, it becomes really uncomfortable, actually. But then it's also beautiful when, they're, they're, when you're engaging with one another and people are pointing out, it's not, it doesn't feel good at the time, but pointing out your sins and, and we like to point out everybody else's, but we got to also be in there 
for ourselves because we're always going to be struggling with sin. So we can't be lying to ourselves saying, no, we're doing just fine. That there is no sin, there is no corruption because we, da- we daily battle against the world. The world is increasingly pushing back against us. The world is increasingly trying to change us. The world is increasingly trying to, to tell us that how we think and how we act is somehow archaic and wrong. That when we talk about same-sex marriage or we talk about there's no gender fluidity, when we talk about all these things that push back against the world, they sit there and they come at us and they keep throwing things at us, whether it's trying to, to uh, uh, mock us, make fun of us, or tempt us. Because the world can be tempting. When it comes to the enemy, when the enemy is sitting there lying to you, Telling you, no, no, you've got no sin. You're fine. You deserve this. You deserve that. You could do what you want. Did God really say you should not eat of that apple? We struggle with the flesh. You know, it's not the big sins that get me. It's all the small ones. Sometimes they might lead to a bigger one. But it's all the small ones. It's the ones that, like, they're really good. I want them. But I know I shouldn't have them. But I, I want them. It's these, that's the, those are the ones we really have to be on the lookout for when it comes to our flesh. Looking at what are those, those sins, what are those temptations that, that we gravitate towards, that we think that we're gonna, that it's okay, that, that it just, just this once, or it won't happen again, or it's not really a big deal, or is it really outside of, of what God's standard really is? I mean, we're constantly dealing with our sin. And if you think you're the only, if you've won, if you think you're, you don't struggle with your sin, that you don't have a sin problem, or two, that you're the only one that struggles with your sin. Let me tell you both, you're both wrong. All of us struggle with our sin, and you're not the only one. I mean, Paul himself, the Apostle Paul, writes in Romans 7, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Here, right there, we see, the Paul, we see the Apostle Paul talking about how he does the things he shouldn't do. He does not do the things he ought to do. Just like every single one of us. Like Paul, we all look forward to being set free, to be completely set free from this sin. But it's only for those who are in Christ who will find this. Revelation 21 27 says this, but nothing unclean will ever enter. We're talking about God's presence, God's temple. God, yeah. We'll, uh, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. I'm right there. But nothing unclean will ever enter it. Must be washed, must not have any defects, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. In that, we see that we're all in trouble. But only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life, only those who have entered the protective ark of Jesus' presence, knowing what he, has, what he has done, how he has saved us, this union that we have with him, that Jesus himself who, who gave, who took, he took on flesh, who lived among us, who walked among us, who perfectly obeyed the law's demands, who gave of himself to take on the penalty for our sin, it is only those who are in Christ. And he goes now to prepare that place for us. And he says there's many rooms that he will come and he will gather his people that we would then go and be with him. We will go and be with him where there will be no more pain, 
No more suffering, no more injustice, no more death, no more sin. And we know this to be true. We know this to be true, not, not just because we grew up listening to it in church, not because some kid wrote about it in a book, but we know this to be true because we rest on God's word and God's word alone. That God has promised from the beginning that he would save his people. God promised from the beginning that I will be your God and you will be my people. God promised from the beginning that he would make a way to rectify the situation, that he himself would be our mediator, that he himself would represent us, that he himself would pay the penalty, that he himself would live up to the law's demands when we could not, that he himself would pay the price that we justly deserved. He has promised this from the beginning. From then, we are in the Lamb's book of life. You see, the promise of today's passage is we will be saved from the presence of sin. There is so much wrapped up in this small passage. So much. Jesus saving us from sin is a promise for forgiveness and for reconciliation. Those who are far off who are brought near. Those who are made enemies are now family of God where we can cry out, Abba, Father. You see, we're saved from sin. Jesus saves us from the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin. And he does this for our good and his glory. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your word. Lord, we know your word to be true. And we know, Lord, that, that it's only in you and you alone that we have this salvation. And it says that it's, that it's you and no other will save us from our sins. Lord, let us leave rejoicing in the promise that we have in you, the promise of forgiveness. Let us leave rejoicing in the hope that we have that, that one day we would be completely free of all this sin, this inner battle that we face, this, this inner turmoil that we go through daily. Lord, I pray that, that we would leave rejoicing knowing that we've got this union with our God, that nothing will separate us from, the, from your love, nothing, and that you have already dealt with the penalty. Lord, you are with us now. You are with us now as we, uh, working with us on the power, dealing with us, encouraging us, convicting us, strengthening us. But one day we'll be completely free of the presence of it. We ask this in your name.